Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today, we welcome back Matt Dines. He is the CIO of Build Asset Management. Dines, welcome back, dude. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be back. Just checking my calendar, and I think we last met up in August. Uh, lots happened in the treasury market and rates and the dollar since then. It's just exciting to get back and talk about uh, what's coming up next. All right, so we get Dines on to talk rates. We will get his thoughts on Bitcoin here at the end. I know he's been looking a lot at the chart and he has a lot to say on that topic. But we have Matt Dines on to give us his sense of rates as something that he is watching on a daily basis. Matt, let's start with your view on what is going on at the Fed level. We have a long-term chart here of policy rates and other short-term money market rates, swap rates here, um, obviously mostly tracking together. What are your big picture thoughts on this cycle? And if we are here at the end game of this cycle? End game, possibly not. I don't know when it comes, but I think the key takeaway, we'll go over a lot of indicators, market pricing um, that we can dive deep on. But I think the key takeaway from my point of view, my seat at this time is this end stage looks a lot more like um, something like the 96 to 1998 Southeast financial crisis that came, you know, when a lot of people in these seats were not quite in diapers, but, you know, young and, and not managing this business. It looks more possibly more like that in terms of dynamics than the kind of most recent trilogy that we've become ingrained on the 2001, 2008 and 2020. So happy to dive deep and unpack that as we go along. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin-only exchange. That means there's no confusion when you go there. They allow you to deposit and withdraw via Lightning Network. They have a zero-fee recurring purchase order feature. And what we love the most about River is not only do they encourage you to get self-custody, but they're there to help educate you on self-custody and everything there is to know about Bitcoin. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL. Yeah. So what happened in 98 that gives you that feeling? Yeah. So the key dynamic of, um, you know, the late 90s, you know, with the U.S. market focus, our attention was on, you know, the tech bubble taking shape, the dot coms, uh, that first phase of, you know, the commercial Internet's build out. But what was going on in the dollar market overseas, um, the big action was all happening in Southeast Asia. It was a lot of dollar funded um uh, fixed investment, CapEx, et cetera. And you saw a dynamic where a lot of credit built up uh, and dollar credit in a, in, a, in a foreign exchange currency that these uh, growth economies in Southeast Asia couldn't, um, you know, print themselves. And as you saw a global slowdown that, you know, contracted through the system. And in this cycle, the key things uh, that really mattered were international dollar FX reserves, um, dollar deposit rates like across uh, banking and in the money centers throughout the world. So Tokyo, Singapore, London, Caymans, et cetera. And that kind of global dynamic really dominated as opposed to not just what was going on in the United States with the tech bubble. So policy reacted differently from Washington, D.C. than kind of the, the 
two-dimensional framework uh, that we had to operate under in 2001, 2020, et cetera, that we're more used to. Uh, but this looks a lot like what you're seeing with the banking system now, a lot of uh, bad credit built up in the, you know, the 2020, 2021 stimulus purge. And I think, in my opinion, what we're seeing right now isn't the clean cut, you know, hey, we hit those indicators, we, we have to cut rates, we just press the easy button on the monetary, monetary policy mode to fix things. We've got a, a lot of those different dynamics at play that's something like the late 90s really, really brought in. So I think it's a flip. We're kind of mirroring back to where we were uh, as the, the big debt cycle kind of starts to work in reverse and, and we cross over the, the big hump. Okay, so this is the dollar. We're going to get into the dollar a little bit more, but to bring it back home, this is the dollar strengthening, putting debt taken on abroad in danger. Why? Because when you are uh, when you are an international borrower of dollars, and then the dollar strengthens, your revenues, which are in local currency, are less able to pay back your dollar debt service because the currency has depreciated and in that way a strong dollar then becomes a danger to the world so we're going to touch on that in a little bit but first dines i need to ask you about banks you talk about banks you talk about bad loans asset write down potential loan loss provisions what is going on there because i'm not an i'm not a banking expert right we look at rates, global macro, we look at the Fed, Fed watching, of course, money markets. But what is happening in banks is outside of my core area of expertise. I need your take on what's going on in banks. You could do domestic and international both or or either or. Yep, let's stick to the here and now, then I'll compare and contrast to 1998 because I think it gives a good tell. Um, so right now you're, you, We've known this buildup in commercial real estate um, for at least the last 12 months since Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera, the cycle of uh, or the, those failures in March 2023. Uh, but we knew the balance sheet or the loans made, especially in 2020, 2021, were going to be a problem. I'll just foot to um, Barry Sternlich's numbers on this. We can you, we don't necessarily have the ability to dive deep on every commercial real estate loans and understand where the problem is. Nobody has a full picture of, you know, specifically which loans or which properties are, are in distress. Individual borrower, like individual borrowers and bankers do, they know who's in trouble, but collectively there's no aggregate sense of the entirety of the problem. So we won't know until we hit those pressure points. Um, but Barry Sternlich from uh, Starwood, he runs a, you know, some of the math most largest, you know, real estate trusts, um, private investments. Um, he put out a, a number that said, okay, there's $3 trillion in US based, you know, domestic commercial real estate loans, just like skyscrapers in our major urban areas um, would be a lot of that. But he, his number said there's $1.2 trillion on losses on $3 trillion in loans. And we don't know where those bodies are buried within the system. Um, so that's a 40% impairment on those credits. And you've got to have, you know, the bankers work through, do the, do the debt workout, you know, et cetera, to get those loans through the next cycle. That's coming. We just don't know exactly how it resolves. So what we got in the, you know, earnings announcements from, let's say, New York Community Banks a, a couple of weeks ago that, 
you know, regional banks and, and broadly the financial sector, both their debt and their equities have been responding to. On that earnings call, we really got a good takeaway from kind of a smaller scale, a smaller end large bank, right? A $100, $100 billion plus bank. And for them, it was two commercial real estate loans that, you know, delivered this um, earning surprise and this guidance surprise. So they're going through this situation right now where they've their, their management has said things like they don't have the modeling to actually, you know, forecast the, the credit provisions accurately. I didn't put this chart in the pack and the chart pack, but if you look at the Fed's H.8 report that they release, comes out every Friday afternoon, but it's as a Wednesday snapshot. You can see for the last at least 18 months that that loan loss provisions line that's held as a contra asset on the balance sheet, it just ticks up. It just kind of steadily marches up. It cycles up and down, but it's trended up. And what that's telling me, you know, Nick, you've, you're a CMT um, charter holder, so you probably know this better than I do. But what I get from that is the market doesn't quite know where it is. It's walking up to what it thinks the number probably, you know, where it will land. We won't know until we are months past it, obviously. But that's telling me the banks are still, um, you know, working. Their analysts are at their desks and they're working to understand this. They don't fully know uh, the depth of the problem, but it's slowly kind of baking into to that number. So that NYCB, you know, we'll keep seeing this. That's they're not the only bank holding, you know, the, these CREs. There's 1.2 trillion and and impairment waiting to be realized. That's what we need to cross. And then to bring it full circle. This time around, you know, in the let's call it the 2024, 2025 late stage cycle, these are U.S. based loans. Right. And this is this comes down to, in my opinion, policy from the, the response in 20, March 2020 um, and then the spending, um, uh, fiscal spending um, that followed that created the incentive for, you know, misallocation of capital, bad credit to get created. And now we have to digest that. But in this case, these the, the credit is exists in the onshore real estate market. It's our fixed assets versus in 1996 to 98. What carried it were, were the buildup and, and credit that turned out to be, you know, unwise misallocation, et cetera. It was really chasing this growth wave. Everybody bought into the Southeast Asian growth miracle, which was dependent on exports really like shipping containers. We can talk about that. What's going on in the Suez maybe later, but the bad dollar credit was parked in markets like, like uh, Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia and like similar, like hot growth areas in Southeast in, in Southeast Asia. And so that, that encouraged the speculative build out and it was dollar loans from Japanese banks and European banks that eventually took those losses. This time around, you're seeing it, the heart of the problem is in the 50 United States and our major urban centers. And then you're slowly starting to trickle in some banks from, let's say, Germany or Japan headlines that these international banks that that allocated and took parts in, say, loan syndications on the U.S. CRE. Now the impairment and, and the the you know, failure to contain potentially is, is, is spreading beyond just the U S banking system. It's, it's, it's international in scope to the, to the developed economies. And so it's kind of the, the mirror image, in my opinion, what's shaping up to, to that 1998, you know, unwind. Okay. There's so much to unpack there. 
what we talked about before Matt just explained here about the commercial real estate problem that's US-based was a problem I was describing for debt taken on abroad. But in this scenario, while that might be the case and there might be bad debt abroad as well, to right now we're talking about the onshore US real estate exposure that US banks have as well as now we know Japanese banks and German banks also have. And Matt explains in one word, which is syndicate, which means that these loans are making it into international investment portfolios. It's not just like a German bank lent money to a U.S. office building. Uh, it's it's really this the syndicate of loans that uh, are trafficked around the world. So yeah, one more me, one more thing on that, Nick, too. Go ahead. Then they'll yeah. tranche up the risk, so you might see like a securitization waterfall. And so you don't quite know exactly who owns what piece of the risk and who will take the losses. It's very hard to pool this data all together. So we don't quite know until it happens where the losses will be taken. Okay, excellent. So now I want to first go with something anecdotal, which is that, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. I drive all around the city. I drive to campus, which is about 30 miles away from me, and I take different routes. Um, throughout the city, uh, most of the time, just to give myself a sense of what's going on in the economy. I am my I cannot believe my eyes at the vacancy signs on office buildings in every single part of the city, in every style of office. So from the strip mall to the to the high rise to the mid rise, to the major parts of the city, to smaller suburban parts of the city. There's there's a lot of retail vacancies, but I've seen that for a long mm -hmm. time. The office vacancies are staggering. So forget the data for a second. Forget the $1.2 trillion impairment that might be coming. From an anecdotal perspective, what are you seeing and hearing about commercial real estate, office commercial real estate in the U.S.? So if it's a newer build with, let's say it's an, I live in Seattle. So you had like uh, in the last 10 years, like um, kind of an urban campus core built out, like specific built for Amazon headquarters. Now you are seeing stuff uh, like headlines from the big tech companies, the Magnificent Seven, if you all just assume the audience is familiar with those names. Those companies are now cutting staff as well due to you know ai automation you know lower end lower value add um, type of office worker roles those are getting reduced and so i, I would say um my, my on first glance when you drive around the city which buildings are doing the best uh from the commercial real estate standpoint if it's a new high rise and it's built for like salesforce.com or something like that. It's like, you probably have a good tenant locked in. Now they are going through their own dynamics as well. Now, if it's an older, you know, 1980s class B type of property, it just, you know, it's needing a renovation or some TLC. Um, that's where it's very hard. And I'm not on the ground in this sector, but just knowing um, and, and talking to people in the Seattle market, who are in, in involved in commercial real estate, it's very hard to pull a new tenant in on a lease, especially when your your old leaseholders are not renewing. Um, so that type of dynamic makes it especially difficult to to 
meet your um, numbers you need to hit on your income statement to satisfy your banker uh, at the end of the day and and deal with this loan rollover uh, to ultimately you know carry through the property. So the building will always be there. Now, is, is it going to be valued from an economic use or not? We'll see. Um, but, um, but, you know, it'll change hands potentially in a debt workout, but we're in that kind of stalemate period where everybody, you know, the, the, the owners, the equity holders in these, you know, real estate investment, you know, groups, they want to hold on. They don't want to lose. They want to see if they can roll over. And then also the bid coming in some, you know, third party, if they're, if they're actually holding cash or they can access credit to, um, take on and, and borrow against the property and with, uh, with numbers that potentially makes sense. We're kind of in that waiting game until, you know, the forcing function takes place. But yeah, I think it's, it's every market, Nick, it, like you mentioned Los Angeles, which is, you know, a massive market, it's a great indicator, um, you know, about how the U S economy is doing, but, um, you know, I'm in Philadelphia right now, you see similar things, um, you know, as we're driving you know, to different destinations to meet with clients. So now we're going to get again to this $1.2 trillion looming impairment potential. But I want to go back to the H.8 loan loss provisions put out by the Fed every week. Remind us that's an aggregate number across U.S. commercial bank mm -hmm. loan loss provisions. Is that what we're talking about? Here? That's correct. I don't have the... So Barry Sternlich's estimate is 1.2 trillion. That's his analyst forecast of what the impairment sure. is going to take place. Um, I didn't put that chart in the chart pack, but we can you know look it up. We'll tweet it out. But you can see the walk up. I don't think the market has found the the actual number where it's going to land, but the trend is, you know, it it, it keeps inching higher. Of course, and so that's what. And we're not trying to necessarily reconcile those two numbers here. What we're explaining to the audience is that if there are a trillion of bad loans out there, those losses need to be provisioned and they get provisioned in advance in the banking system because the banks can't surprise their equity holders with massive losses out of nowhere. They have to explain to the equity holders hey, we believe there is impairment coming down the road. So that's going to be something that we're going to watch for. And that is the dynamic that many are expecting will drive the next set of easing. And that's that's where we are in the cycle. So what, that what you said at the beginning is, I don't know if it's the end game, but this is the dynamic here on where we might be heading. Correct. So you've been covering three month, six month T-bill auctions um, and the inversion of this. This means that the six month bill, bill auction level, clearing level is lower in yield than the three month level. And that implies some, that it implies some dynamic in the money market but at its most basic, it implies a downward sloping policy rate in the three to six month period yeah. time frame. So we've seen this happen now for, for several consecutive weeks. What are your thoughts here as this three month, six month bill curve remains inverted? Yeah. So you see a lot of watchers, they'll base, you know, the, what, their interpretation of the, where the market sees policy rates based on, let's say, Fed funds futures. Um, 
And it turns out to be a very unreliable indicator, right? It's, it's more meant for hedging, not necessarily for um, accurately pinpointing the, the trajectory. But if you look at the weekly bill auctions, and what we're trying to do here is identify an indicator that tells you where policy rates are coming in in the short term. So three month and six month, it's, it's really that period of time where things are kind of right in front of you. What you like, there's a lot of potential um, kind of tools in the toolkit. If you're um, a policymaker in charge of bank regulation, so there's a lot of organizations in Washington D.C. who have their um, have a stake in in regulating this industry. But a big one is you know the Fed. And so one of your choices, if you're addressing say these loan losses, we can get into the details of what. Uh, how a central bank should operate and actually operate a monetary reserve. And, you know, I've been reading a lot on Walter Badgett's original book, Lombard Street, to identify how an actual, you know, someone held up as kind of the, the bona fide, the, the, the elite of the central banking banker, like in all, in all history, how they would address the crisis versus how we have in the past, how we've dealt with this um, kind of the, the tightening in the system, if you're the pressure buildup in the, in the money markets, um, if you will, that's kind of reflected in all these dynamics that we're talking about, the loan losses on, on credit on banks' balance sheets. One of the things you can do to address this is cut policy rates to zero. And that's what you saw in like the post-2008 aftermath. You saw it, you know, something similar, exactly the same in 2020. And then something very similar post-2001.com bubble. Didn't go to zero, but it went to 1%. So if you're looking at that three-month, six-month bill, when it inverts, it's a sign that the pressure is building up in the system. The, the money markets, which are operated by, by the, the large money center banks and their activity, they're telling you they don't want to take rates higher, right? And, and so this inversion is, is that early kind of leading indicator of, of if and when um, policy rates need to go, go, go over the hump and, and be cut. Now, there's a lot of other things at play. This is, in my opinion, this is a complex late stage cycle. Um, that we're going through as opposed to those other previous three I'd mentioned. So there are um, deep considerations in play. One of them is is the dollar, the DXY. Um, where does that come through on exchange rate? And there's long-term implications for that on where the dollar's headed. And also um, yield curve, treasury yield curve rates. Now that, you know, we are, in my opinion, you hear a lot of talking heads who understand the situation, you know, which much, with much greater deep dive insights than I do. But in my opinion, I lean towards we've kind of crossed over that Rubicon, if you were, where we're in fiscal dom uh, dominance to finance the government deficits. The level of the yield curve is, um, you know, first and foremost, it takes precedence. So all of the, those dynamics are in play, the dollar, the, the treasury curve, its ability to fund, uh, fund itself, the government's ability to fund itself. And now we have to deal with with those situations as well in our policy mix. So it's not quite as cut and dry as as those prior three iterations. And I I will remind the audience that there is so much to consider when thinking about the money market. You have the government, as Matt mentioned, the government is spending and borrowing all the time in varying amounts that affects what's going on. Then you have what's going on in the economy in terms of how much reserves need to be in existence to actually just 
grease the wheels of the economy and allow it to move. You have the sheer amount of longer term treasuries that are being issued that need to be financed by banks through the repo market, which can come from the money market. That, that's where the funding can come from. So there's so many moving parts. It's impossible to really talk about all of them in, in each episode that we do. And so we're, we're doing our best to just describe to you guys really each one of these moving parts as best as we can, but also always remembering that there are too many moving parts for us to ever all, you know, know what's going to happen because there's always a blind spot. And the longer that you're in portfolio management and interest rates, uh, the more easy that is to understand that just there are infinite blind spots we'll never be able to know. It segues with the next chart, which is the amount of reserves in the system. This is, of course, merely reserves and doesn't account for the reverse repo balance, the BTFP balance. And um, in that way, we're only looking at one aspect of Fed liabilities. But talk to us about reserves, what you think about this bottoming in reserves last year. The increase in reserves since then, I know you'll you'll mention RRP in your answer, but talk to us about reserves. Yeah, so reserves, the way we've treated them post-2008 are, well, actually, it goes back before that, but it's a misnomer to the you know central banking classic um, kind of paradigm where reserves, um, if you go back to the Bank of England up until World War post-World War One era, Reserves meant your gold in circulation where the currency was redeemable for, for money. So you had that layer of embedded trust baked in. Um, and then it also meant the banknotes um, that were circulatable. Um, there was a hard cap uh, from a law in 1844 in, in Britain where there was, you know, X million of, of you know, pound central bank, BOE, you know, banknotes that could be issued. But the bank, uh, the central bank uh, would be kind of acquiring those on its own. Uh, you know, balance sheet, its own reserves, it's putting those bills in the vault. And so when you got into these times of um, kind of tightening up in the in the money market, that's where this idea of the lender of last resort came in. It's like you can, you know, it's, it wasn't actually the gold that was in demand. It was it was the, the bank notes as a final settled, um, you know, there was a counterparty risk, but it was the Bank of England. So everybody viewed it as counterparty risk free. But it was there to issue the, the the banknotes in circulation, if you will, as you know, legal tender to go out and satisfy all debts, so that you know the panic in the banking system could ease. So they spread those banknotes in, um, and then you had other forcing functions and controls. You had the you know a hard cap in place, a lot like Bitcoin's twenty one million, right? Turned out well, the hard cap was unenforceable. Eventually, it got uh, moved up, and then you know the golden situation as the situation calmed down, you know people and you know banks etc would start to redeem those notes for the gold um, that the BOE held in its vaults, and then the gold uh, has like the base circle. You did a great job covering this, Nick, and and layered money that would work its way through the banking system as a panda keys. So classical, you know, we call it the Federal Reserve, but it doesn't quite operate that way in the modern in the post 1971 paradigm. Um, and you can kind of see on this chart, you know, we start in 2008, well, it turned out like there were no reserves in the system relative to the amount of, of credit that's built up. And my interpretation of this chart is we're, 
we're trying to inject more base money. This is what QE is doing. It's also funding the, the government deficits that just keep going up with inflation. But what it's trying to do in a very tail wag the dog way is reflate, remonetize the banking system. And, and the U.S. banking system, um, you know, in my opinion, is much softer, much weaker. It's also much younger than the rest of the global banks, which are also not in great shape. But the U.S. banking system is kind of going through a period, um, if you will, where you know, we're, we're still a young country relative to, to most others. Um, you know, it's a great experiment. But our banks, I think, right now are more fragile, especially post-2008, than uh, it's not too controversial to say that. And we're still kind of recovering from that, you know, major wound. But um, what we're trying to do, like from a policymaker standpoint, I'm talking about, you know, if you're the if you're the Federal Reserve, ultimately what your responsibility is, is to hold up the the banking system from going through these panics and contractions to ensure the you know, long term stability and survival. Um, and so what you're looking to do every time we see that drawdown in reserves and we hit a bottom, that's connected to this, you know, foreign investment coming in, this dollar capital that's offshore coming in to invest in our market that works its way through the through the US banking system. It is the you know de facto version of the base layer reserves. And that's how the Fed can, you know, uh, realistically implement its lender of last resorts policies if it were to act like an actual central bank in the in the classical paradigm. So whenever you see those reserves drawing down, that's your sign, um, you know, relative to the total credit that's on bank balance sheets that, you know, you don't want to let it fall below X numbers. And and that's, you know, where you get the the guidance from, you know, the central bank, the FOMC speakers that we're in a um, least common level of ample reserves, you know, policy regime. It's, it's very quietly stated. They're not front and center about it, but it's part of that dynamic of, of maintaining the integrity of the banking system. So your reserves ultimately are your backstop against um, those loan loss provisions on your balance sheet, right? When you see panic working its way through the system, the public trust you know, in deposit banking is holding your, your money as an asset, as an individual, you and me, Nick, parking our, our dollars at you know, whatever bank we do our business with. Our belief in the system is is really held up by um, the bank's ability to, you know, weather those, you know, credit drawdowns as we get through these cycle bottoms. So that's really what the Fed at this point is focusing on in this dynamic. And it's a lot different than, say, the, the policy toolkit that, you know, the same thing you had in 01, 08, 2020, et cetera. All right. It sounds like Matt Dines is doing a lot of monetary history right now with the Walter Badgett reference, the lender of last resort origins and the Bank of England. Love to hear it. This is, uh, of course, some of it is featured in layered money, but there is a lot more to unpack in the story of lenders of last resort and how central banking evolved over the years. Let's talk about reserves then. And something that I'm starting to understand a little bit more here is that the reserves of these banks, like you said, it's their it's their protection against loan losses, right? It is their safety net. They need them. But now in this newer regulatory regime, which I don't necessarily, we, we don't need to get into the regulations themselves, but from an, a banking health perspective as well, 
keeping reserves is now valued so highly at these banks that they're not potentially not going to lend those reserves to other banks that might need them on an overnight basis at the federal funds rate. And that can distort money markets and basically uh, cause the Fed to rescue the financial system with a reserve injection immediately. Can you speak to that dynamic about reserve scarcity, but from a from a banking health and protection yeah. perspective? So I think it was January 12th, there was a policy paper um, with a lot of you know, big names around the G30, you know, central banking community, like Mohammed El Arian was on the white list. So you can link to it in the show notes. But there's a plan now, um, you know, lend freely at a penalty rate against good collateral. Seems everything's lining up to get to something along that line of policies. Now, for one, like the bank reserves, uh, we can tell one reason why this is important. One, one way to pass through the inflation on um, fiscal deficits, this is on the uh, a Calamaris paper uh, where he goes into the detail. How do you actually monetize the deficits? There's only two routes. You can actually work it through in the in the financial system. You can do it through printing of notes like Fed notes in circulation, or you can lower the interest rate on on reserves. Uh, so that would lower it to zero uh, and and uh, monetize the the deficits that way. Now that would come along with um, like effectively what you would be doing is weakening an already um, you know, sick patient, if you will, in the U.S. banks, you would take um, IORB interest rate on um, excess reserve balances uh, from 5.4% where it currently stands, uh, which is pretty healthy. You get 5.4% to park your, your, you know, a bank's version of cash at its local central like branch of, of uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, you can do that for 5.4% and take no counterparty risk from the system's, you know, perspective. If you lower that, you you know you may patch up a situation, a solution, um, you know, uh, a bank failure, if you will, um, if that catastrophe arises. But in, in doing so, you'll be hurting the dollar as well. And we, we're kind of seeing this. We can look at the the technicals, if you will. But the dollar's been in a long term kind of bull channel since two thousand eight. Um, if you cut risk, like your your policy rates to zero percent. That inflation rate differential, like from my read, it looks like if you were to do that, cutting rates, you're going to get a weaker dollar. And this is just the way you know, we're looking at all the big headline events, you know, FOMC meetings, NFB payrolls, et cetera. Whenever we get something that pushes a uh, strong or weak dollar, like it, it responds accordingly. So risk-free rates that, you know, kind of responding to the same news when it, when it wants to see, when the news headline indicates like a market day, um, front end rates down, you, you see um, dollar down as well. So the DXY exchange rate, it does matter. It is hyper important, if you will. It's one of the key variables in this equation. But what the central banks look like they're pushing on from a policy perspective, it's in that G30 research paper. You can link to it in show notes. But what they're trying to do is get all the banks to custody their collateral, like at FRBNY, Federal Reserve Bank of New York or similar, where the central bank knows that the loan or collateral or security, it could be like a treasury bond or an agency is there and they have the ownership clearly mapped and they know it's not encumbered by another lien or another liability. Um, because when push comes to shove in that situation where they, there needs to be a lender of last resort in the system, 
if you're, you know, trying to s resolve a situation like a Credit Suisse or Silicon Valley Bank, for example, there's a lot of paperwork. If you're not ready in time, you have to go through the securities pledged and make sure, you know, what are the downstream repercussions? Like who has that been pledged to or who, who owns what and when? Um, so what they're trying to do, this policy paper makes it very clear in advocating for custodying those assets at the central bank. So they know, you know, that uh, a bank, when they need to access cash, this is where the deposit or the discount window comes in. Um, when they need to access emergency, emergency liquidity to resolve kind of that pinch, if you will, um, they have that asset to post to the Fed. You know, it could be a tr treasury would be like the lowest haircut asset, or it could be a CRE bank loan, right? And it's going to be tough to value, but we know based on um, what happened in March, 2023 with the BTFP, it wasn't just treasuries you could post um, and, and get your um, basically repo lending with, with no haircut. It was 15 other, you know, agency, government agency bonds. A lot of these things do not trade every day, but there was no market price needed and they just pulled out at par. So in, when push comes to shove, they have the kind of the framework and the tools in March 2023 and then um, First Republic that came afterwards, I think in May. And then these kind of pop ups that you're starting to see, you know, with the January announcement, like NY, uh, New York Community Bank, for example. You've got a policy framework in place where it seems like because of the importance of the dynamics to keep maintaining, you know, the Treasury's ability to fund itself, there's going to be a different route in here. And you're going to see, you know, a central bank, in my opinion, operate under the the Powell era. And Powell is cut from a different cloth than Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, you know, et cetera, like that era. I think he is looking to implement kind of a, an infrastructure where it, it's more of a lender of last resort like framework as, as much as it can be in a system that, you know, there is no gold base, there is no hard asset at the end of the day. It's still the base layer reserve asset is U.S. Treasuries, right? Which are, it's kind of still the tail wagging the dog or the, the Ouroboros snake just self-consuming itself. And, you know, we're just printing more and more treasuries, but there's actual control and, and some sense of bedrock trying to be put underneath the, the U.S. banking system. It is interesting to think about this concept of pre-parked collateral at the Fed by the U.S. banking system in order to draw on same-day liquidity if needed without any hiccups, really, without any reputational risk via the discount window, without any same-day rehypothecation collateral issues, where Matt was describing that if you need to post collateral to the Fed to borrow, but you can't, you don't know where the collateral is. It's pledged to somebody else. You can't get it back that day. You might get it back tomorrow, but you need funds today to send out reserves to a bank or to your depositors. So there are, there are a lot of issues that we need to consider when thinking about the quantity of reserves in the system and the you know associated dynamics with banking now you talk about the dollar let's talk about the dollar now we'll have the chart up this is a multi-decade chart of the dollar give us your quick take on the technical analysis you've you've let us know about you know the dangers of a stronger dollar as well as the potential for a weaker dollar if rates are slashed at the policy rate level 
So what are, what's your outlook here? Yep. Um, so this chart doesn't have the channels drawn in as cleanly uh, for the audience as my others, but these are charts I look at every day um, to, to watch this range. So this goes back to, you know, the Volcker era where we saw um, a, a dollar squeeze uh, and you had to get the Plaza Accords where all the central bankers came together of the developed economies and emerging markets as well to um, kind of loosen up that this massive squeeze in the system that was really the 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 international dollar kind of standard, if you will, dealing with the repercussions of that Volcker tightening um, at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s. But over the long run, you see like up until right about 2008, uh, dollar is trending down as liquidity is flowing through the system. You've got the international global trade, everything with the dollar credit system. Things are going well, right? And then 2008 happens. That was a big shift um, in, in the entire framework. And ever since then, you've seen the dollar kind of trade within these, uh, within a pretty um, well-defined uptrend channel. So um, you know, Nick, we don't need to go into technical analysis here, but that might be, if you're looking, think about this in terms of like long-term waves, you've got an easing wave where the dollar is weakening from, you know, 1983, 1984 Plaza Accords up until 2008. Then you hit into a counter trend rally. The worry I would be looking for here is the dollar dropping out of that channel on the other end. Um, and that counter trend rally of the last 15 years, um, you know, being exactly that. And we're on a continued dollar weakening. So if I'm a policymaker, I've got to be extremely cognizant of that. And you see uh, both Jay Powell and Janet Yellen in their congressional testimonies, you can find statements where they're saying like the U.S. is still operating under a strong dollar policy. Um, but if you just zoom in on the last few years, the post-2020 environment, you saw that massive printing, like just record stimulus, right? And, you know, massive monetization uh, from a QE standpoint. That took the the dollar from the middle channel where it like right in the middle of the channel where it opened the decade down to like a new low at the bottom. Um, but that's all that that massive easing in the system really did. It still it that alone didn't push it outside of the channel. But what you saw as the inflation, you know, the, the, the first inflationary impulse, the transitory wave, if you will, that we're working on the, you know, we're on the downslope on, on the other side of it at this point. But that big run from the bottom of the channel to the top was entirely um, rates market induced. Nick, you do a great job talking about the two year sell off starting, um, you know, very quickly after that massive easing. By the end of 2020, it was clear that, you know, your long bond, your treasuries, your tenure, we can get into these charts in a second. Those were already selling off. So that massive um, stimulus that came in March 2020 and then continued with some follow on policy actions that only got us to the bottom of the channel. And we talk about the tenure, like the interest rate channels as well. Um, that only got us to the bottom. And then we swung back to, from bottom to top very aggressively, similar to how we did at the, uh, the 2015, 2016 era. You can see a similar thing happening. Uh, but then we topped out again. This, this time around, it was entirely monetary policy induced, which means at the end of the day, it was the treasury yield curve driving market. It was interest rates driving the action. Um, and so what you see in the easing now that we're coming down on the cycle, um, it started in October 2022. Uh, there was nothing that the Fed did 
to make that happen. It was entirely the system's own dynamic. What that would uh, concern me at if I'm a policymaker is the pull of the chart. You know, while we may get, you know, see the dollar milkshake theory, sure, we may get another um, visit to the top of the channel. You know, if you follow that upward trending, the, the biggest one trending up and to the right, like there's 120, you know, maybe higher in store. But I would be worried at this point of the gravity pulling the dollar down on the you know international exchange rate market and that's where things like the deficit situation the bank system itself the economic and the group you know, growth in the us that is front and center of, of what's driving this this big picture dynamic and that'll be fascinating to watch because we don't it is a relative game that's what fiat currencies are they're relative games so we don't know we know a lot about the us we don't know what's what bodies are buried abroad in those banking systems, we know that the deficits, the national deficits are mostly not as bad as the US outside of Europe, but there are, there are lots of things to consider. So, uh, Dines, let's talk about rates then. Uh, we have the tenure now on the screen. We are, in a relatively well-defined up channel that has been in effect for about four plus years. More, in my opinion. More, more, in, more in, in Matt's opinion, so we'll talk about that. Uh, that's coming off of a multi-decade down channel. So summarize, uh, summarize this opinion here that it's been over since 2016. Yep. Um, so it's hard to spot it when we're in motion. You only know these things three, four, like years in post as, as the market pricing is your leading indicator of where equilibrium lies. You're going to find it somewhere in the future, but everyone's well aware of that smooth down channel in the like 10 year treasury rates, for example, in the yield curve. And that's how this system was, you know, that was the key variable, right? Well, we play with the U.S. interest rates that saw that really was able to give the, the international dollar system, the global trade, all of that economic activity, um, that that variable, you know, level of the yield curve was able to, to, to put the system back in balance, right? Things were, were good. Things are healthy. 2015, 2016, it looked like we were still in that downtrend, but in post, you can really start to identify that, hey, we're. it's very clear at this point, we've broken out of the channel, um, but it's actually looking to me like interest rates, level of yield curve, it actually wants to go higher. So the implications of this are our banking system, our credit system, we're going to have to learn to operate and be comfortable with higher levels of interest rates. And you see it here on the technical bounces. So the blue line, I didn't, I didn't capture the, the, the peak of the 10 year rate. Like it was up at like 16% in 1982. That's where that gray line hits. And then the, that light blue line, that aqua line, it hits at these peaks right before that. I should have extended and done a better screenshot here, but you see um, in the 2023 rate rally or yeah 2023 october 2023 the latest one um you know november and december this year we had a really strong bond market right we had the same thing the year before october 2022 but you see it didn't break through that old um that really long-term uh uh support line on yields 
it, it bounced off of it. So like all things equal, if I'm a policymaker and I'm actually looking to market indicators for where the system wants to move to and find its new equilibrium, I think, and, and this is why there's probably a, um, a love-hate relationship with Powell and the FOMC now every meeting coming out and sounding like, well, are we gonna, are we gonna cut, are we not? Do we hold on longer? They want to at this point, you know, just the kind of bait and switch we've been played with the last, I don't know how many, like six FOMC meetings. They wanna push the cuts off into the future. They know they're probably gonna have to give some um, to the system. But this is telling me that like the new equilibrium, or like the equilibrium on where the market wants to set interest rates on, you know, fiat currency or bank money debt um, it's higher. So we're going to have to absorb it. And that changes, um, you know, what you can do in your constraints as, as a central banker. And if, if you're uh, Congress, if you're the treasury on what's actually addressable in your policy mix this cycle. And it's important to note that a system that is operating in a 1% regime for a decade, might not even have to adjust to 5% rates, but even three and a half. And that could be a brand new adjustment and something that would uh, cause losses throughout the system and be something that was difficult for the system to account for. Dines, it's it's really a great framework. I, I wanna emphasize, viewers might wanna watch this show twice, I'm being very honest, because there's a there's a framework here to think about some of the longer term effects on global macro, our currency and our interest rates here that it's sometimes we're not doing because we're thinking about the day to day impact of economic data and what's going on in the money market. So these are these multi decade charts are very important and um, really added a lot of value today. We got to close with Bitcoin. Let's talk about your Bitcoin outlook really quickly. We're above 50,000 here uh, on Thursday, February 16th. What are your thoughts looking to the next several months in Bitcoin? Well, we know we're going to get the halving, right? It's lining up late April, early May. Um, but, I mean, it's it's pretty clear uh, the cycle bottom was FTX, November 2022. Um, things look strong in Bitcoin land. I mean, you can look for leading indicators all over the place, but I'll just throw one out there. It's more qualitative. You've seen on Bitcoin podcasts, like on, on the Twitter feed lately, I haven't like you have Michael Howell on really prestigious guests and he's taken a Bitcoin, you know, stance like he's he's long, you know, a long view uh, on the asset. Uh, so you've seen like really solid name industry names in the financial sector coming in um, and advocating. But it's even more than that. You've seen other, you know, advocate or people come in. Maybe they're not. Uh, fully advocating for Bitcoin and what they what the thesis is that you outlined so well in, in your book, Layered Money, and, and where this might be heading um, as kind of the, the financial system continues to align ar around what Bitcoin is as a trustless, trustless ledger money asset, in my opinion, will offer you know, a, a really strong potential to become that um, base layer settlement asset that you used to have with gold that banks can now operate under and restore, you know, a, a a sound standard um, and stability in a banking system. But you see other names like uh, Jim Krishan, stuff like that on like Natalie Brunel's content, uh, podcast. So you see other names pulling in and this is with the ETFs. Now you see that last excuse for 
let's say you're a financial advisor and you want to allocate your client into Bitcoin, you're starting to understand the thesis a little bit. Now you have that tool where you don't have to go open, you know, a self-custody vault or figure out how to run a cold card or the private keys. There's a solution now for that specific customer, like, uh, you know, a retiree sitting on their, you know, life savings, their nest egg, and now they need to allocate the Bitcoin. We now have the tools that the infrastructure is already getting built out. It continues to be built out both like on the, the layered uh, layers on top of the protocol itself, the e and the ETFs are a key one of those, in my opinion. So things look very strong, uh, like from, from a narrative standpoint, the having coming up, the ETFs coming through, there is, there, there is going to be, um, some type of policy shift coming in my opinion. I think the the and like everything's lining up. It probably isn't the March meeting unless the banking system demands it. But I think May is where I've got kind of circled on my calendar. The May one FOMC meeting on on uh, the, the, that series. Uh, it's a live meeting. It comes right with the having. I think I'm watching that period very closely. And uh, so yeah, things are things are looking really exciting in the Bitcoin space. The last excuse is gone now to buy Bitcoin. Matt Dines, CIO of Build Asset Management. Thank you so much for joining us once again today. Please tell our audience where they can find you. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. You can hop on uh, Twitter. I'll you know, happily engage uh, at, at BuildCIO. Um, it's the best place you can, you can reach me. Excellent. I'm Nick Bhatia with Matt Dines. We'll catch you guys next time. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, the reason that we love River is that they are a Bitcoin only exchange. There's no confusion when you go there on what you're buying. But really importantly about River is that they do not use a third-party custodian. They have their own multi-signature solution. That means that when you buy Bitcoin on River, that Bitcoin is not being stored by another party. River is storing it in their own multi-signature way, and they encourage you to get your Bitcoin into your own self-custody and help with educational resources on that front. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL. Yeah.